series where V and I sit down and have the type of conversations you would have on a red-eye flight late at night when the world is asleep. All sorts of thoughts can pop into your mind and we keep things thoughtful and entertaining as we discuss these ideas. V, man, you just got back in into the country. Uh, how was your trip, dude? Where Tell the tell audience about, uh, you know, the little Colombiana excursion you had. Yeah, um, fantastic trip. Uh, to Colombia, as you know, many Americans kind of have this stigma uh, where they're stuck in uh, in the 1980s Colombia, where Pablo Escobar was running around and drug cartels were everywhere. And uh, I didn't know; I knew I knew not to expect that. Usually, you know that uh, American media is sensationalized. I, I I believe even in the time when he was he was running the drug trade, there were you could probably go to parts of Colombia safely. Uh, just like there's crime everywhere. There's yeah. there's definitely <laughs> there's crime in the United <laughs> States that, that that's happening every day that's just as gruesome and just as brutal. So um but with that said, went to Medellin, didn't know what to expect. Um absolutely amazing experience. Ex- at least where we were at was extremely safe. Um beautiful uh, country built in the hills uh when you go and you visit places places outside of the u.s you develop a a a strong appreciation for um just the beauty of other places you know just the ability to build a city on the hills like that um is just a landmark you know and i think um the weather was perfect the people are extremely friendly obviously english is not uh, as prevalent there as it is in in some of the other um, other Latin American countries, but the truth is, in, in this day and age with Google Translate, even if you're not a fluent Spanish speaker, it's actually fun to com- figure out ways to communicate when you can't properly communicate verbally. Um, and I think we were able to to really master that. And I think it's really about showing mutual respect to each other. Um, and when you do communicate uh, to understand, you know, I think a lot of Americans, when they go overseas to countries where they don't speak English, they almost take offense to it. And it's like, no, there's no obligation for people in this country to speak English. It's not <laughs> America, you know, but, you know, and it's your responsibility. That responsibility is on you when you go to these countries um, to figure out a way to get by and communicate. Did you and guys respect their like- culture, most importantly? Yeah, totally. Did you guys have like the language requirement in high school? Like, which one did you end up uh, studying? I, I stopped at Spanish too, but it's been oh, okay. twenty years. So, so. Yes. I mean, I know the basics. Like, I can I can say like basic basic things, but it's like when you're out of practice, it's just like anything else. Like, people can tell when you really know a language and when you don't. But <laughs> if necessary, like I can I can ask the basic questions and do the basic things. Uh, but don't no, ASL Bonyo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could definitely, I could definitely ask where the bathroom is at. So yeah, seriously, seriously, dude. Uh, also, your teeth look like super clean. Have you been doing something special? Yeah, I got them cleaned, bro. Did you? Yeah, I got them cleaned. That's nice, man. That's not. Is that yeah. like a a professional service? Professional service. That's fancy, bro. So in Colombia, yeah. is it like you're in Medellin? Is it like high altitude? Like, could you feel the? Uh, could you feel the difference? I couldn't necessarily feel the difference. The first day, I made the mistake of trying to go for a walk, though, <laughs> <laughs> and I quickly realized I left the hotel and went downhill because everything's on a hill. People uh-huh. don't really, really walk uh, walk too much there, but I walked probably a a mile and a half downhill and that uphill back up was pretty pretty uh (laughs) pretty challenging (laughs) he's just like climbing a mountain yeah i was i was i was pretty uh pretty exhausted i thought i was just gonna go 
for a little nature walk and it turned into a full out workout. <laughs> That's insane. I was thinking about right, you. Right. I was thinking about you last week because you were in you were in Colombia. I was back in Columbus. Um, you know, both of our old stomping grounds in a sense. Um I was just curious about your perspective because you know, having been to Houston now to visit you a few times, I, I really do love Houston as well as a city. It's a really, really fun place. And there's a lot of areas of Ohio that I, I think remind me of Texas when I'm there in terms of like construction, like in terms of the way the cities are laid out at times. Um, you know, what what's kind of your your general vibe of um, you know, Houston versus Ohio? Are there things that you miss about Columbus or do you kind of feel like um that you know the city of Houston has all the boxes checked? I mean it has most of the boxes checked. Um I think Houston, the reason I chose this place is it's a good combination of like all the experiences and places that I've lived, um, you know, big city versus some of the things that I missed from the Midwest. You know, the thing, the thing that's challenging for me and going back to uh, Columbus specifically now is it is, it has changed pretty, pretty drastically in the sense that it is very corporate now. It is very, very um, different than kind of like the typical hometown Ohio. Uh, yeah, you know that uh, yeah. that we grew up experiencing. Um, and I also think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of like it, the culture is a little bit different there. Um, but overall, I don't see too many things. Um, in Ohio that you can't get other places. But the thing that's different now is there's a lot of things in Columbus that you couldn't get before experiences that you couldn't have before that you can have now. Yeah. The other thing that, you know, stands out to me about um, Columbus specifically is the food scene. Like the food is just so freaking good. Obviously, you know, we have love for Donato's, um, but I haven't really even living in LA. I never really thought that the food was, was comparable like you've got places that maybe by reputation are supposed to be like the top of the top but I, i've never really felt like these fancy restaurants and these like kind of bougie things that everyone loves to put on social i've never really felt like they held a candle to like me going to piata or like you know even the chipotles in ohio i feel like taste better than the chipotles elsewhere yeah i think there's just a standard of um the whole Midwest, there's a standard of, of, uh, what would I like to call it? There's this, uh, a professional standard. That's the best way to put it without being disrespectful <laughs> to other people that I think exists in, in Ohio that doesn't exist in other places. I think it's not so much about hype. You actually have to make good food for people to, uh, really uh, patronize your restaurants not about how good your instagram page is it's not about which celebrity is going to eat there you actually have to have a quality standard and you see it in just how many quick service fast food uh, franchises have started from ohio continue to, to grow you see jenny's ice cream everywhere now um yeah there's so there's so many um so many fast food restaurants that got their start in the Midwest. And I think it's specifically because of that. It's the culture of blue collar work ethic um, that I think still exists to this day and respecting your job, respecting regardless of what job it is, respecting and having a standard um, by which you, you approach that job and you execute that job that I think doesn't exist in a lot of big cities. And I can speak for Houston. The service industry here is terrible simply because I think everybody, um, you don't need to work that hard to get by here. So a lot of people, a lot of people don't take their jobs, uh, specifically in the service industry as, as seriously as they do in those places like the Midwest. What, um, do you feel like that's, uh, just Houston? Do you feel like, cause I haven't, I, you know, I haven't really felt like when I, when we went to Dallas together, I felt like they kind of take that stuff a little bit more seriously because there's like more of that kind of like southern proper culture there um than i experienced in houston do you feel like that's kind of a, a texas thing or do you feel like it's a houston thing 
it's it's a it's a Houston thing. I mean, within the <laughs> cities, you'll feel it. If you get into the rural Texas, you might uh, you might run into some some problems if you've got a, a, a certain complexion. But uh, overall, I think uh, people in Texas generally are um, the attitude is like essentially just do you and I'll do me. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's like people just don't really bother each other too much here so i've been hearing this thing about the difference between like the two coasts that i thought was really interesting and this kind of brings up is that if you get a flat tire on the west coast everyone's going to be like oh man i'm so sorry like that's so bad and they're going to stand around and kind of tell you like man i feel what you're feeling like i'm sorry you feel that way i'm sorry you're dealing with this and then on the east coast like in new york you get a flat tire, someone's going to be like dropping F-bombs, calling you every sort of name, telling you you're useless for having a flat tire, but they're going to be doing that while they change the tire for you. You know what I mean? I feel like it's pretty funny because I think Texas is kind of this unique environment as well. It kind of is like this third third angle of it. Um, I'm not super familiar with like the culture of um, you know the people there, the camaraderie, but I definitely feel like it's got its whole different unique flavor that you just you don't see it anywhere else in the world to be honest yeah it does it does it's a it's a very unique place man that's crazy so um you know and there was something um you know i guess like to me like really funny that happened this last week um i was watching the uh the kanye drama a little bit and he went on to Alex Jones's podcast thing and he wore a mask and I saw some of these clips circulating and I could not stop laughing because dude came across crazy muffled in everything he was saying. And I was yeah. just like, what era of media are we in when someone can come across this muffled and people are just gonna just gonna be okay with that? Like that is so funny to me. How like how much the quality I think it, there's this, you know, the the level of quality we record stuff at, I think really matters the least that it's ever mattered because I think people want this like raw organic feel. But I think it's really funny to me when people treat these like larger programs that you know have been more uptight about that like major either a major news network or something with you know larger following bases um typically people would you know handle those situations in you know very very like professional ways but even like on cnn even on fox even on every single kind of news network you have people do interviews from like their car or like on their phone and they're like glitching out halfway through and it's just like what are we watching these days what is all this content yeah i mean it's a non-stop need for content right and there's no like kind of professional standard uh anymore and i think the reality is you have a you have a choice as a creative to, to care or not to care because it's almost yeah. like there's this emphasis even when you go on tiktok it's like the less professional it looks like the better results you're gonna get <laughs> it's like so it doesn't it the worse the content is the better it's going to do like i think there's this kind of overall like kind of one of my concerns with society heading toward the direction uh, it's cool that anyone can do anything that they want to. If you want to make a, a, if you want to become a musician, it's very easy for you to get the recording software and build a home studio for under a thousand bucks to be able to do that. If you want to start producing videos on TikTok, you can do that. But I miss the days where there was a professional standard, and I was able to get content that was filtered to me that actually was all at a specific standard of quality. I think quality is de declined for volume. And it's like the other side of this is that the, when you create that much volume, how effective is the content actually? Is it just a whole bunch of people being distracted by a whole bunch of different thoughts and ideas at all times or people actually still having thoughtful interaction with the content that they engage in the data shows that most people's attention spans are declining um but i just want to know what the correlation between that is and actual um 
actual cognition and actual like is this the reason that we have this version of kanye versus the kanye that we had in 2002 who had to go and really work hard to produce a record and make yeah. music and and appreciated the work that went into it versus the kanye today who can get on any any day get on instagram or twitter or, or, or the alex jones podcast and say whatever idiocy he wants to say i don't know if he was if he was saying stuff that was any less idiotic or if it was just that he didn't have as many options in terms of having a platform to say i'll tell you i'll tell thing. you what bro he said the absolute funniest thing i have ever heard him say he's on he's on with alex jones and he's talking about the nazis and hitler and alex <laughs> jones is like but we can agree that the nazis were bad and kanye mm-hmm. goes no no there's actually like the nazis were pretty good <laughs> and hitler was like, like he had some good things about him and Alex Jones, I've never seen because he's usually the crazy dude in the room, right? So he's usually like saying the wild shit. I have never seen Alex Jones look so shocked, bro. He looked at Kanye and was just like in Alex Jones' eyes and on his face, you could see him just like, oh my God, I'm already buried deep underneath this shit. I don't need any more on me. And he he completely yeah. was like, yeah, no, 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 agree to disagree, and immediately trying to get get the segment ended. And I think there there has to be an award for making Alex Jones uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what this guy's on, but I mean, clearly, like that whole like uh, the idea of muting someone uh, should probably go into effect soon because it's pretty clear <laughs> every time he's met with like uh met with like outrage he just doubles down and says something worse it's so obvious what's going on here (laughs) yet we just want to keep watching it and then get upset about what fucking kanye west has to say it's like Uh, it's like this this loop is so hilarious to me because it's like okay everybody's got it now everybody's figured it out what the game here is and And then everybody falls into and it works every time. It's it's funny. Um, there's that, and then there's also kind of simultaneously still a ton of interviewing happen of this um, Sam Bankman Freed character SBF uh, from the <laughs> FTX kind of crash. And watching his interviews is equally hilarious because he's clearly been advised by his legal counsel that the only way for him not to go to jail is to claim ineptitude just a complete ineptitude <laughs> so he's sitting here on yeah. these interviews like face to face with like george stephanopoulos from like C- for like a cnbc interview for example and he's like so what happened to <laughs> to this billions of dollars he's just like i don't know who had access to the accounts <laughs> and he's just like you're telling me you did not know 10 billion dollars left your bank accounts you had no idea and Sam Bankman Freed, you can see him just like contemplating his entire morality in that moment. You look, you look at his face, and he's just like, "Fuck!" Like I have to look like this terrible idiot to like not go to jail for my like selfish decisions. And literally, he's he goes, "Yeah, like um, you know, like I just I just didn't you know didn't handle it well." Like he's he's essentially claiming a level of ineptitude that does not match any of the actions that he's taken which are all you know very carefully thought out to be able to avoid any sort of issue if he if you know for essentially stealing all this money from people and my god man like it's funny to watch to watch media these days because even the reporters like in that context or with the kanye context they don't even know what to ask because people are coming out and they're being so brazen about their total bullshit stories and their perspectives that, you know, the the media personalities, like, I feel like anyone who's been in journalism for like more than a decade is sitting here like, what am I doing right now with my life? Like, this is a complete waste of time to do these interviews and to cover things this way. But, you know, anybody kind of in the recent era is just like, well i can get my clicks and and build my clout and it's like this interesting divide where you can see like you remember when john stewart left or when brian williams left nbc and brian williams not even not even a guy without without uh you know lies to his name like remember he lied about being in afghanistan during the war and all that like 
even he, when he left, was just like, yo, like our media landscape is like not it right now. And, you know, you see the pain in these guys' faces when they have to deal with this stuff. Well, I mean, it just, you know, going back to, to SBF and Kanye, it goes back to like the smartest thing for these guys to do is to not say anything and to disappear and not do media. But it goes back, it reinforces kind of the addiction that these guys have for attention and how much that is valued. Like, dude, just shut up and sit in a corner and let your lawyers talk to you, talk for you. His lawyers are not advising him to go do media interviews. I know that for a fact. No, no attorney that's worth their weight would be doing that with somebody in the circumstance. It's say less, be quiet, let us play this scenario out. But it just reinforces like this whole idea of like when you're talking about media, also the celebrification of business. Like I didn't understand a culture in which like CEOs were supposed to be celebrities. It actually works in direct conflict with what you're supposed to do within that context of being a business person. You're supposed to uh, not generate as has any headlines that aren't related to your business and they're reflected on you personally. Um, but it's just the shift in society and you see it also how damaging that is, how deep the addiction is with these guys like Kanye and SBF, despite how much outrage they get, how much they're hurting themselves by getting on these media interviews. They're so addicted to the attention that they can't help themselves. And it's just, yeah. it's pretty sad because it's like this guy is putting himself at risk, a higher risk of going to jail just because he can't stand the thought of his name not being in headlines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the reality. It's like, it's this weird thing where society really feels like it's in adolescence where you have so many people in, you know, acting out trying to get attention for the sake yeah. of needing attention and i feel like i don't know how much more rope there is here <laughs> you know what i mean like we're, we've pulled pretty freaking far in this direction of like noise and chaos like pretty soon it's it's gonna reach a point where people just don't care anymore and i think that's like that's the maturation of society in general but man is it weird to like live through these times because everything that we're seeing in the headlines like 10 years ago would have been in the onion yeah yeah <laughs> yeah you have no choice these days except to be um to, to see the bullshit you know uh and i think you know moving on to like uh, another interesting storyline this weekend was um just uh you know Deion sanders did not choose to go to georgia tech uh <laughs> i was hope i was so hoping but the 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 decision to go to colorado um has been met with a lot of of backlash same thing with um luke fickle leaving cincinnati and this idea of what loyalty means in the 21st century or in this century in the, era, in the era that we live in what how should we define loyalty what obligation do people have to be loyal and in what context is loyalty supposed to be defined is something that i've been thinking about as i've been kind of seeing all the sides and all the angles um of all of these stories you know and i think it highlights it the most in college sports kind of kind of how loyalty doesn't really have much meaning and it's a moving goalpost because every one of these coaches, when they take a job, they don't need to say, hey, I'm loyal to this program. I'm here to change the culture and the perspective HBCUs. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay at Cincinnati. I'm going to build a program. I'm going to build a culture here. And then suddenly when the right opportunity presents itself, it against the landscape of the things that you said, it looks bad when you go and you jump ship and you take a job at a better situation. There's nothing wrong with improving your life. I think a lot of this has to do with the things that people say that they don't mean more so than anyone being upset at them for making the decision to 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 better their life and better their family's life and put themselves in a better professional situation. I don't think that's the issue here. 
And I think the issue is deeper than that in terms of like the accountability of character that we hold people to um, being kind of being uh, destroyed a little bit. Yeah. It's interesting you say, say that because I think there's something powerful in terms of how people use their words to try and rally people. And I think, you know, yeah. Dion's a personality where he speaks a little bit over what he means to get people hyper, to create an emotional reaction. And I think that's probably a very, very useful asset as a coach. Um, but I, I can definitely understand, you know, he came in with this very pro HBCU messaging and it seemed like he was doing this, you know, from his words for the reason of promoting football at these schools. And then, you know, the second the, the opportunity at Colorado came, he dipped. But not only did he dip, I think what really rubbed people the wrong way is he's taking most of his roster with him of yeah. players that he recruited. and. Obviously, with NIL, very fair move. You know, nothing, nothing on paper wrong with that. Um, but when you set the expectation that you're trying to build this program, and then you drain it back to what it was, if not worse than what it was when you leave, then you, did you really build a program? You know, did you really make the impact that you said you were there to make, or was the whole thing kind of you were just really in it for yourself? And I think that's like. That's what people feel. And, you know, I don't have a problem with Dion or Fickle or any of these guys taking the better position. And I'm sure you don't either. But it's it's really at the end of the day, like, how do you do it? And I think with with Dion specifically, the thing that stood out to me was him going in and in the press conference, naming his son as a starting QB. Right. Like that was that's nepotism. Yeah. That's like who does that? Yeah, it's, telling it's, the Colorado it's, team like y'all better get in the transfer portal because y'all y'all you know it's a sorry team going one and eleven. Like, man, like how do you know that these kids are not good enough to play play for you? You haven't seen them work. You haven't seen them in person. You just showed up, but you're telling them, yeah, your your jobs are all gone. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like to uh, you know make a reference to Metro Boomin's new album Heroes and Villains right like the reality of like public figures is nobody's really a hero anymore nobody's really a villain most people are somewhere in between and they're trying to figure themselves out i mean if you look at Dion's history as a player he rubbed a lot of his own teammates the wrong way uh, as well with the way that he carried himself um but i do think there's this thing called accountability that i think as a standard that doesn't matter anymore. Like there's no accountability um, for him leaving, leaving Jackson state the way that it did. There's no accountability for a coach who takes over a program and doesn't leave it in a better situation, but then gets fired and gets his contract bought out. These are all the things that kind of create entitlement. Like we talk about this a lot in society, like people are entitled, you know, and, Entitlement comes from the things that we allow as a society to happen. If these institutions didn't create the environment where these coaches had no accountability, that they know if they get a big position at a big school, they're going to get guaranteed $30, $40 million, no matter how they perform because of the way the buyout, the buyout market is. Um, how, that's going to have a collateral effect down the line in terms of the quality and standards and and it goes back to the conversation about what is the responsibility of these academic institutions um as academic institutions versus as for-profit corporations because college football and college athletics are for-profit entities within uh academia which makes it very very challenging to start with but then when you you know why isn't the all-star professor getting paid five million dollars a year why is it only the football coach you know what i mean yeah. like um and then why is you know obviously you have things like tenure within the academic field as well but it just seems like we just have an era now in which these coaches have no responsibility and then when the players start acting the same way and they're jumping in the transfer portal whenever they a situation isn't convenient for them we want to ride the kids but it's like what do they tell you? Kids follow what the adults in the room do. And if they're not seeing the loyalty from the program, from the coaches and accountability, 
how are we going to have that amongst them too? And then the next question is, how does that impact the development of these guys into elite athletes? You know, um, can you coach guys hard? We've had these kind of, can you do these things anymore? And it, I think it's all just a, a, a situation where you evaluate it, you look at it, and it's like, it's easy to say, oh, it's Dion's fault when it's Dion that does something that rubs you the wrong way. But it's like, how do we look at this thing as an institution and as in a, at a macro level is how you make the fixes. You don't fix it by just writing Dion Sanders for being, you know, basically a product of, of the system that we created. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. It's a different expectation as well for people who are in these kind of more public facing positions. Um, you know, something that I've found interesting is that there's also a lot of executives in the tech industry that are stepping down right now and stepping down for the sake of new ventures, new ideas, kind of seems like a phase of new beginnings for a lot of people as well. So you can't really blame people for going through the growth process. And obviously, fan bases are going to feel very emotional. But it is this it is this exercise of like, if you get too high on someone, then you're likely going to get very low on them in the future. And I think that's really represented with the Dion situation and with um, you know, with with most of the figures we idolize in society in general, like I think celebrification, if you study kind of the history of it, started in the 20s and 30s in Hollywood, there were not celebrities before that. It's just not how people thought. Yeah. And so for the last hundred years, we've had this paradigm that we're starting to break now, actually, in, interestingly enough, like a hundred years later. And I think it was a paradigm that we've all kind of come around to realize was not really true to reality, nor was it good for our health. Like it was something that we all got kind of caught up into. And we're at this point now where we get to actually deprogram from that and start to look at everyone just as a regular person. Like if you knew Dion personally, I highly doubt anything that he did would be surprising to you, nor would it disappoint you or get you too excited. You'd just be like, that's mm -hmm. Dion, just like you are yeah. with any of your friends. But because it's somebody you don't know, you, for whatever reason, expect them, and because they get coverage, you expect them to be better than you because the media is telling you they're better than you. The clothes they wear are telling you they're better than you. The jewelry they're wearing, the, the restaurants they eat at, the kind of like way that they're spoken about tells you that. And I think like, it's nice that we're entering an era where, you know, in a sense, like the downside of, you know, everyone having a platform is that the content quality is lower. But if you look at that in the longer term, that's really more of a technological solution. You know, as phones get better, as computers get better, everybody's content quality will, will eventually go up quite significantly. But um, when you think about the side effect of everybody having their own platform it's that celebrification goes down in in you know kind of the broad scope of things i think we have a generation that needs to move through before there's really an impact there needs to be a new generation kind of at the helm um and i think what gen z is doing is really unique because they operate very differently than us they're all very unique individuals but there's this wave happening that you know i, I very much welcome which is everybody looking at each other as the same and i think that that is what ultimately we need to get to like it's not about gender it's not about sexuality it's not about race it's not about prestige it's not about money it's not about clout it's just like okay that's a person that does that for society and you know we could just leave it at that like if somebody's a football coach we don't need them to be mother Th Teresa as well you know yeah, I mean, I hope I hope that's that's true. I mean, I'm seeing a sense of that amongst a certain subset of Gen Z, but I'm also seeing it worsening because everybody now, regardless of what they do, cares more about being, not everyone, let me say a lot of people now, because of a culture that's driven to draw attention to yourself, um, people are focused more on the things that they're able to do as a result of what they do, then actually focusing on that thing that they do as being what fulfills them, right? It's about what mm -hmm. the byproduct of successes are versus, hey, I want to be a really good engineer. Hey, I want to be a really good school teacher. It's not really about that anymore. Um, and again, again, it's not their fault. It's the way 
society triggers and rewards certain behaviors, it rewards that behavior more than it rewards the person who says, hey, I really want to be the best doctor. So I'm going to go to school. I'm going to do the research. I'm going to go to school. For Nobody wants to reward that. They want to reward the fact that a doctor, once they're completed, whatever glory comes from that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the dangerous part of this. And I think, um, I don't know if there's going to be a rebirth, but I am, I feel like there's a de- decline in proficiency and the decline of quality work, a quality workforce. And what human beings are doing is essentially why this is happening, as far as I'm concerned, is that human beings are, we're, we're pretty much guaranteeing our own doom because I'm seeing this within just by interacting with you guys and what we're doing within our company, the, the how much automation can actually replace people and how much better it's getting. The more and more you decline, the less and less you care, the more and more you are producing that end where you're replaced by machines and we're all just human beings are essentially um, don't have the same utility in society as they did before. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think there's the there's, you know, I I believe like trends happen till they reach breaking points, and then there's a, a change involved in yeah, and then you kind of move the other way. So I I agree with you. I think all of these these patterns that we're seeing have to lead to breaking points. I think there's an economic breaking point that we're in the middle of right now, which is that um, I was just reading some stats on this, but um, debt amongst the millennial generation is significantly high right now. Uh, it's obviously the middle of a recession, but it's reached levels it's never reached before for the generation. And to me, like that's that's breaking point logic. Breaking point is when, okay, I can't continue to go on the way that I have because I have to change my behavior in order to you know get to the place that I'm trying to go. And we've been in this era of you know significant financial abundance, and it's actually been relatively easy for a lot of folks to make money. But I think what we tend to forget is that when it gets easier to make money, usually that means a lot of things that don't actually create value are getting compensated for more value than they're worth. And I I really feel when I think about whether it's investors or whether it's business builders or, you know, entrepreneurs or, you know, just a lot of folks um, who end up being drivers of the economy it's very very trend based these days whether it's drop shipping whether it's um you know amazon stores whether it's real estate whatever the the current trend is of how people are making money seems to be where everybody is trying to go and it's it's always funny to me because you'll get you know like we're talking about dion dion's at jackson state all of a sudden Everybody wants to work with Jackson State's football program. He's at Colorado. I read that they had 200 students in the NIL portal reach out about playing at Colorado. And it's this trend-based thing that the media drives that still very clearly affects so many people. And I think until those people are not affected by the trend and learn to make their own decisions for themselves based on what's good for them, it's going to be very challenging for them to really find their place. And you know, my belief is that each time that cycle iterates, maybe it's 95% of society falls in that trend-based thinking and 5% is out of it making individualistic decisions. Maybe the next cycle around, it's 94% or 92%. And it chips away, chips away, chips away until ideally every single person is living their life from the sense of, you know, what am I here for? What, what do I want to contribute and not being swayed by the mob? Um, there's a youth element in that. There's a self-discovery element in that. There's a lot of different elements that play into that model. But ultimately, I think as time progresses, we're going to see less people buy into these mainstream trends of how they should be and decide for themselves who they who they actually are and live live that truth. But I do think there's going to be a lot of friction between where we're at and getting to that point. And it's the good kind of friction. It's the kind of friction that creates growth. It's the kind of friction that's that's challenging. And you know, in this age of 
self-love, I think we're overdue for a new wave of motivation of like work ethic based speak of a whole generation of folks that builds on, you know, back on the the values that we started in in like 2010 to 2014 in this wave, you know, coming out of a down period in the economy where hard work is valued again. Uh, ultimately, like, I think that's the next step. And, you know, we're just not there yet in the cycle. We're still talking about all the different ways we can make money, all the different kind of digital means of making money. We're just not yet there where we're talking about, you know, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Yeah, I mean, we're in a shortcut-based society. What's the shortest point from A to B, you know? And it's like uh, we're constantly trying to tinker with things to make them easier, to make them more user-friendly. Like even like what you were saying about video editing, like you and I can download an app and essentially create a movie on our own without having done any of the work that was necessary to... uh, to become an editor, to become, to actually know how to do it, it does it for you. It tells you how to do it. Is there something there? I feel like there's something that's going to be lost um, in humanity when people no longer have to do the work to be good at what they do. And there's always a shorter approach. It's, the flip side is, it, is, is that it is effective um, specifically for small businesses and creatives um, to create a larger platform. There's obviously benefits and costs to all of these things, but I think there is kind of a a, a balance we need to reach um, where we say, hey, you know, it's not just only about making everything easier, making everything simpler, easier to get from point A to B. There's actually value in make, keeping certain things hard, keeping certain things challenging um, to filter out the bullshit um and so that we do get good quality in everything that we do because at the end of the day how i measure you know every decision that i make in my life from the restaurant that i go to the doctor that i choose it's going to be is it is this somebody that i sense really cares about what it is that they do because that's who i'm going to support it's not going to be someone who just figured it out and knows hey I know how to market, so I know how to get people in the door. To me, it's still, I try to try to set value metrics around people who care. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, I also want to want to comment on, um, you know, with increased ability to create products that appear high quality in terms of technical execution, I think it adds extra value if you understand taste. I think that's still yeah. and probably for a while going to still be the main thing that people have to take time and iterate and learn because taste is to me like what humans can do that computers can't maybe a computer can edit maybe a computer can do captions maybe a computer can do you know color grades computers can do so many things but the way you put it together to make it stand out from what everything else that's out there and make it resonate with somebody's heart that feels like a very human thing right now. Yeah, I mean that's that's always the missing link. Um, but I do think also with 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 things, the question that I'd have is what the sheer volume of things that can trigger those thoughts. Um, how much value is still placed in that? Right? And are people? Are people being programmed to not appreciate that element, right? Taste as much because of the uh, the changes that are happening and the need to, you know, to constantly be stimulated. Is that reducing the ability to appreciate taste, um, or is it just a small subset of population that's still because there's always the tastemakers? Is taste reserved only for tastemakers at this point? Um, what does it actually take to have your taste resonate in society? Right, right. And then the other thought that you know I've had for a while is like, are tastemakers really just the first followers? You know what I mean? Like, maybe taste is defined by 15, 16-year-olds, and tastemakers are the first ones to, to duplicate that. You know, like, we all know, like, 
every class has has its kid who does the unique thing, wears their hat backward, and everyone wears their hat backward, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's never going away. Like the the leaders in style or fashion, or you know what's cool, what's not cool, especially on the micro community level, like within your friend group, like there's always the person that you know you got to go to for a movie recommendation, or the person you know you got to go to for like. Yeah, what what kind of shoes should I get? Like, that's always yeah. gonna be there. But to your point, like, maybe it looks really different. Maybe taste in in itself is like less, um, quote unquote, professional than it has been over the last many years. And maybe taste is something that is also becoming highly segmented and regionalized, so that. There is no, I think in the past, there's been more of a national taste. Like if you look at even like like a Pixar movie, like Pixar movies in the 90s and early 2000s, it just hit for everybody. Everybody resonated with, you know, anything that Pixar were to put out because it it met kind of the need that most people have. But it's been a long time since there's been a movie that was put out that I feel like really hit with everybody. and. You know, part of me wonders if we've just created such small niche communities in such volume that it's it's you know nearly impossible for something to have national or globalized reach, except for controversial content that you know hurts everybody. But if you take that out of the mix and really just look at like matching content to communities, like maybe the future is this hyper hyper localized, hyper hyper segmented type of taste that works for 10 to 20 people at a time yeah. and there, there's a cumulative trend based on that yeah i mean i i hope that that's ca- that's the case i would prefer that but what i kind of the concern that i have is i feel like the, a lot of things are forced on people that they probably wouldn't like um that they like because the supposed tastemakers like fashion is the best example of this. When you look at these high fashion brands and the runways, 99% of that shit is not anything that any of us would want to wear, but because it's produced in the way that it is. um, And we glorify these fashion houses, the way that they are, that, that we do that suddenly where it's like, Oh, that's, that's what we should be wearing. You know what I mean? Like there are so many of these these trends and Kanye is a great example of it. Like some of these Yeezy shoes are just flat out ugly, but because everybody <laughs> else is wearing them, everybody suddenly feels a trigger to need to wear them versus where if something something needs to prove itself first as something that like the Jordans, they became popular, obviously, because Michael Jordan wore them, but also because there was a lot of value. And, and we've gotten a chance to interact with some of the people who have been instrumental in creating them. Like there was a design element, there was a care element um, put into creating that that product that you put out there and you let the market dictate. I feel like now the the media and the platforms are dictating taste before it's tested in the market. You know, the old consumer product, you put it in the marketplace, you put it out into the world and the world and the and consumers will tell you whether it's viable or not. I don't think that that's the case anymore. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I think a large part of that is the amount of hands that are being greased these days to make something cool. Yeah. Like we've learned this, you know, through all the stuff that we've been involved in, if you want to make something trend, there's a lot of hands out that are looking for money, that are looking for you know, stock yeah. in your company. That's whack as fuck, bro. That's so stupid. Yeah. Like, If it's a good thing, you should share it because it's a good thing. Like that, That's just my, my view on it. And it, I think it's kind of how you and I have always operated with things that we appreciate. We, we try to help it without asking for anything in return. And this yeah. era of like, you know, get your value or know what you're worth. It's valuable for many people, but there's some people who have taken it too far to a point where they're trying to take without giving um, the same in return. And, you know, I think that there is an issue with how things are proliferating because of those kind of many, many, many interests. And it's very similar to the music business where you got to pay your DJs, you got to pay 
you know, all the all the promoters of the music, you got to pay the celebrities who want to, you know, who, who ask for a check to push it or something like unless it's it's truly singularly like way above the rest, you know, and it's like it makes it hard for for good things to get out there for sure. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, that's the challenge. It's like I think the, the the button on this conversation is is the only way to kind of stay sane is to think about your life in terms of creating value, you know, and like how do I create value? It's not just about how do I get from point A to point B. What is the value that I'm trying to create? Whether it's in your family, whether it's in your you know in your profession, whether it's you're an entrepreneur and you're bringing something like. What is the value proposition? What is the value that I'm trying to create? And a lot of this stuff takes care of itself um, amongst the, my friends who I think um, have found uh, success and happiness or contentment. I don't know if any adult is ever fully happy. Um, it is through that, right? Is they've gone through the bullshit of of the business side of of running any business or bringing anything into the world. But what keeps them going? is the value value proposition of that thing that they do meaning something to them and that's what keeps them going because no matter what it is you're going to hit a point where the thing that you love to do because it is also the way that you feed your family that there's going to be a challenge a significant challenge that occurs and i always find the people who can keep going are the people who are okay doing the work when things aren't going smoothly, when they're not getting the value in return, the value is already justified to themselves internally. So even when the external world isn't necessarily giving them the value that they deserve, they keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more with that, man. You know, and I think that's, that's a really nice wrap up to this conversation. Um, we have, you know, quite a lot, <laughs> quite a lot on our minds, it seems, but, uh, it's a fun time, fun time to be alive for sure. I've, I've never felt like there's so much happening at once. So it's cool to observe these things. And, you know, we'll be back next week with, you know, more thoughts, more, more curiosities. And, um, if you haven't already check out our, uh, college football segment for the week where we're breaking down the Ohio State playoff appearance against Georgia and some of the other shenanigans happening in that world. Always remember to stay moving. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.